This is session six of Technology-Enabled Blitzscaling, a Stanford University class taught by Reid Hoffman, John Lilly, Alan Blue, and Chris Yeh. This class features John Lilly interviewing Jennifer Polka, the founder and executive director of Code for America and co-founder of the United States Digital Service. This podcast has been produced by Greylock Partners. For more podcasts, class notes, slides, and videos, please visit greylock.com. All right. So, um, so hi. So we're going to only do an hour today because because uh, our guest needs to jet, and so do I. So, um, so what I thought we'd do is for a few minutes we would talk about um, a couple of observations, and then we'd have Jennifer come up and talk about uh, Code for America, which I will probably call CFA for the rest of the time, and then um, and then we'll do uh, questions and stuff. So, so some of the comments it was interesting. So some of the feedback that we got after. Um, kind of along the way, was that people wanted more and more uh, specifics and stories and uh, specific situations. And so we tried hard on Tuesday to do a lot of that with Mozilla. I think what you'll find is that as we moved from investors to operators, operators pretty much talk about what's on their mind all the time, and operators are in the guts and in the details all the time. And so what I think you'll find now in Alan's comment as he was headed to the airport is that everybody came up with him to talk to him about community being the key to growth. And so, so he, he called me and we talked and like his, his big concern was, oh my God, are they overgeneralizing? You just heard an hour about community. How, what do we do? Like the community is not the only way to grow. So, and so his point of view was we need to help talk. We're going to kind of keep coming back to lightweight frameworks, which is here's kind of how to think about it. Here's the specifics. Here's kind of how to think about it. Here's the specifics. Um, this is, it's a funny class. We've been trying to, trying to kind of, um, um, uh, thread the needle a little bit between being like, here's how we think about the structures and the abstractions and here's how we operate. But then here's the details and we're trying to be, have, we, we try to curate a very, very thoughtful set of panelists. So, um, so hopefully that makes sense. Does anybody have questions uh, before, we, before we get started talking about um, Code for America? I guess the other thing I would say is like, having said, we, be, be careful about overgeneralizing. This is a funny week because this is the only week we've got any nonprofits and both days we're doing nonprofits and really very, very community oriented organizations. So Mozilla on Tuesday, Code for America today. And so then that'll be the end of nonprofits. So the rest will be for profits and Eric Schmidt and Alphabet was a good example of, of that. Um, all they do is make money at this point. The, um, so anyway, so, uh, so we'll just get started. So I'm very happy to have uh, Jennifer Palka here. So one disclosure, I'm on Jen's board and have been on the board for a couple or three years. Um, uh, Jennifer's one of my heroes because she, she looked, well, she, I'm gonna let her talk about it, but um, she looked at what needed doing a few years back and she said, you know, government's not very of the people for the people anymore. And so she took her entrepreneurial background and said, I'm gonna change that. It came in the context of starting this nonprofit called Code for America, which I'll let her talk about. And then um, I think she's changed the world. And for last year, she took a year off, the year off from her startup to go take a job in the White House to be deputy CTO for uh, the president. So we'll talk about what it's like to leave your startup, what it's like to come back. And now as she's thinking more and more about how does she scale impact, how does she make this a durable, lasting organization, the, 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 um, the different types of considerations she has from when she was starting the company, starting the organization and getting it ramped now to what it is to make it durable. So, so welcome, Jen, to class. Thank you. So here, have a seat. Okay. So um, what I ask, what I'm asking Jen to do first is, Jen, can you just talk about what Code for America is? Sure. Uh, well, we started, uh, and there was an announcement earlier about Teach for America. We started as sort of the Teach for America for coders, but working in government. So it was a service year program for sort of mid-career technology and design professionals to come Wait, work what, in government. What's a service year program? What does that mean? Oh, this is this 
this is a Stanford class. People don't know service year programs. I don't know. Okay, so um, <clears throat> so it's it's a year basically that folks take off from their regular careers and um, do something that doesn't pay very well, but has very meaningful, and they give they give back. So. Um, we started out by doing this with uh, 20 fellows in our first year and three uh, city governments. We worked with Seattle and Boston and Philadelphia. And it's kind of, um, it's grown from there into essentially a program where we help governments take an iterative, data-driven, and user-centered approach to problems. So we co-develop applications with them, uh, help them get an understanding of how you would do that in a way that's very different from how government does it normally, and try to build on all the outcomes that happen when when you're able to do something like that successfully. And you mean mostly mostly not the federal government, mostly cities. We work with local governments because, as you said earlier, we're sort of very much about for the people, by the people. And if you think about what government does, it's you know local government is actually doing a lot of the service delivery. Um, we do increasingly work with states, and we work with the federal government in a number of ways. But it's usually to help uh, make change that has to. Uh, cascade down from the federal government to the states, to counties and cities, and we're working at that service delivery point. Uh, um, you know that happens with cities and counties. All right, so we're going to have to bridge some of the some of the language because it's not very startup language like service delivery, and that just means delivering things to governments or services. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so tell me products. About, <laughs> products, exactly. Um, that's a good word. So, um, so uh, tell me about the first year. So you had this idea. We're going to start this thing, <clears throat> and you started what month? What like? What part of the year did you start? Well, we um, I kind of quit my job at the end of 20, 20, 2009. Your job doing? Uh, I was running the Web 2.0 events. Just, that was like a thing. That was a thing, Web 2.0, yeah. Web 2.0, it was on anymore. the cover of Time Magazine. Um, that was also a thing, Time Magazine. It was, yeah. <laughs> Touche. Mag- magazines. Magazines. Uh, as I was in the sort of business of business tech media stuff and um, uh, had this idea, so I, did, I was sort of doing it part-time until uh, I could wrap up my last project and started at, the, at sort of the beginning of 2010 um, by opening a call for cities to apply. So it was sort of smoke and mirrors. I mean, we didn't really have anything, um, but we were, going, we were building something and, and we had an offering um, that cities could... Could, could apply to be part of our program. And we spent that year um, getting our city partners, um, getting the funding that we'd need to actually do it, which was, it's a good thing we got it, because I don't know what we would have done if we hadn't. Um, so and the first thing you did was go find customers. First said, thing we did was find customers, yeah. Which, what cities want a little bit of Silicon Valley magic. Right. And, you know, um, it's kind of amazing, I think, um, we were able to, you know, put up a decent-looking website very quickly, and it's amazing how that makes it look like you have something. <laughs> That's a good lesson, like, Back when the web mattered, I guess. Now, yeah. you, now you have an app, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think people in local government could go on and look at this thing and go, oh, that's a thing. They have a nice website. Um, and so we got, yeah, we went and, and got customers, um, and then we went and got um, our, 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 our teams, our fellows, uh, recruiting, um, you know, technology and design professionals. But kind of that whole year felt a little bit like... Um, like you're laying down the tracks as the train is reaching the part where the tracks need to be, um, with the funding coming in and staff coming in, just sort of just in time for us to launch the beginning of the you know the first fellowship year, uh, starting in the beginning of 2011. And you said it was 20 fellows the first year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because this is I think a year before I got involved. Um, and so uh, 20 fellows in three cities. Mm-hmm. And how did you get anyone to put their hand up and want to do that? Like, and what what people did you try to recruit and what did they want? Um, 
I, we definitely were very lucky, and I think just the way you do it, we, we made it a competition. Um, and we actually used, we've sort of used this since then. Um, you're, you're not trying to sell them something, you're giving them an award. <laughs> Uh, so we said, you know, cities will apply and we will pick the ones um, that we want to work with. That was also a bit of smoke and mirrors, but right. it worked out fine. So, you know, the first folks that we found were um, these guys in the city of Boston who ran uh, the, 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 an organization I've never heard of before, but it's now somewhat common in city governments. In fact, there's one in Austin um, called the Mayor's Office of New Urban Mechanics, So these guys had already been creating a space for innovation and really a space for risk um, within local government in Boston. And what they had said to folks is, we are the risk aggregator. Um, We're going to do crazy projects that don't normally happen in government. Um, And if they work, and we're we're partnering with departments, and if they work, you and the department get all the credit. And if it fails, we'll take all the blame. And they had this sort of, you know, ability, they had this sort of, mandate from the mayor to be able to do that, who was a very beloved mayor and had very, you know, high risk tolerance. Um, so folks like that were kind of natural first customers. Yeah. Um, uh, mayor Nutter in Philadelphia also just, um, you know, sort of fire in his belly and a lot of executive support for it. Um, so they were just the folks, I think, who could stand the the risk of doing something new. Yeah. Um, and we made, but we made a lot of mistakes that year. And in fact, we initially had four cities. I don't know if I, you even remember this. I didn't know. Um, we were going to be working um, with the District of Columbia as well. And we had a great, you know, change agent partner there as well. And um, right after we signed the contract, uh, uh, Mayor Fenty lost the election uh, and Gray came in uh, and uh, he fired all of our fellows at lunchtime on their first day of work. <laughs> when they were in D.C. already? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's they cool. Made, they made it from breakfast to lunch, and they were escorted out by security. And uh, it's, it's good to hear these stories because there are so many commonalities with what we heard in the first couple of weeks about sort of faking it until mm-hmm. you get your first customer, faking it until you get recruiting, um, you know, finding a kind of, we haven't talked about this, but finding a, a very special class of customer like this yeah. risk agent. Yeah. And because that, that's kind of important because, like, you, you almost don't want your, uh, your mainstream customers because they're not ready for, like, all the, all the, all the mistakes. Yep. And so that's interesting. So it's not the scaling customers, but it's the early customers. Do you have a question, Chris? Yeah, wait. So they, the, gov- the government paid mm-hmm. to hire these people? They did. Yeah, we had some, um, Our and it remains today that we have a mix of funding from philanthropy and from governments themselves. Yeah, one of the things that comes up around fun- is around funding models for nonprofits. And you, you have some mix of earned revenue, so just actual a business model, um, you know, government, uh, so corporation, uh, uh, giving and then individual giving usually. It's ideally like Mozilla, you get to this this sort of nirvana when it's all earned revenue, and you don't have to go uh, raise. But in the early stages, it's a little bit like raising from VCs, which is you get you get partners who are thought partners, and so I think we've been lucky to have thought partners from Omidyar and Knight and other places as well. Do you have a question? Yeah. How did you how did you decide yeah. how to price your packages? So, um, so the question is how do you how did you decide how to price your packages? Um, honestly, what we did is we took the amount that we were going to pay fellows and um, added a little bit to that and um, threw it over the wall. And we didn't get the full price from all of our partners. Um, I think Philly and Boston paid us what we asked, and Seattle sort of paid us what they felt like, and we took it. <laughs> and then yeah. it all went, that one didn't work we'll out talk about, well. We'll talk about productization <laughs> as we go, too. Um, and please feel free to ask questions. I think that's commonality, too, which is, um, sometimes you try to say, well, we're going to base price on what it costs us, plus a little bit so we have enough cushion. Sometimes you say, well, why don't we just ask them for 
this much. It almost always seems crazy to the to the startup, and it, depending on the organization, sometimes it doesn't sound, seem like much at all. So sometimes you ask, and if they say yes too quickly, you know you underpriced it, which is usually what happens. Um, okay, so uh, good. So how did you know? When did when's the first time you felt like you had uh, a product market fit for CFA? When did, when did it feel like you really had a match between what you were offering and what somebody wanted? Um, I think, and, and this is going to get into sort of what our product really is, but the first time I kind of realized we were on to something was um, after one of the fellows in Boston um, stood up an application called Discover BPS. Um, and the background for this is that um, they were working on actually other uh, apps in Boston um, and there was sort of a larger team there than we needed because the DC thing had cratered, so we just moved those fellows over to work on Boston. Well, and, I guess I should talk about the yeah. process a little bit. So the fellows, they're, they're yeah. groups of four or five people. Now we just do pretty much exclusively three and occasionally four. And it's usually a user interface type person mm-hmm. and, a, and a developer or two. Yeah. Yeah, you, what, the, we, what we say is uh, amongst those three people, you've got to have all the skills to, you know, do a basic web app. Okay. Um, you've got to be able to stand something and up. So this is, this is the product, right? This is one of the products. This is one of the products, right? So, I mean, the software product itself, um, uh, in this case, was very simple. It was a web app, that you, a website that you would go on and you would type in, if you were a parent in Boston, you could go on there, you could type in your address, the age of your kid, and whether you had any other kids in a Boston public school, and it would tell you which public schools your kids was, were allowed to attend. But, the, but the, the, the background of this is that they had recently changed the rules about which uh, public schools you would be assigned to. And they did it for a great reason, which is they wanted more kids to be walking to school. Um, but the way they conveyed this was to print a 28-page brochure in six-point type and mail it out to everybody. And uh, that doesn't tell you which school your kids can go to. Uh, and there was this hue and cry amongst parents. There, were, there was a video, I remember, on the bostonglobe.com of a parent crying. <laughs> they were so frustrated that school you know, selection time was coming up and they, there was really no reasonable way to figure out which school your, your kids could go to. Um, and so um, one of our fellows, Joel Mahoney, um, did this full-time and grabbed a developer half-time. And I think we calculated it was about eight weeks, uh, yeah, eight to ten weeks between the time the mayor asked him to do this and the time he stood up a working prototype. Um, it evolved after that. Um, but it was when um, Nigel uh, Jacobs, who was our sponsor and is also now on our board, uh, who's, who's our, our partner in Boston, came to us and he said, you realize that if this had gone through regular government channels, it would have taken two years and cost at least $2 million to do this. And I thought, okay, this is something valuable. And and I don't think we even realized that before, when we started doing this. So the, and then you see how the, the product is not just something that the parents can use. The product is the way that everybody around that goes, why does that need to take $2 million in two years. Right. So we're, we, I, Jen, we had a little bit of a, of a group of us have dinner on Tuesday, and Jen, Jen was trying to articulate what, what, the, what the real product is. And because it's easy, I think, when you're, when you're kind of wandering around trying to figure out what's happening, you can say, well, here's the thing we make. That's the product. Or here's the thing. And we were talking about this, uh, this and trying to get people to say, well, if you ask, if the product is, if the outcome you're trying to get to is people asking why, why can't it be different? That's, a, that's an important and powerful outcome. And trying to figure out how to get to there is kind of key. 
Um, and it kind of echoed, with, it kind of resonated with me from Mozilla. It's like one way to think about Mozilla's product was Firefox, the web browser. But another way to think about it is that we were trying to put pressure into the system to try to force Apple and Google and Microsoft to behave differently. Because our, our mission was a little bit more than a commercial mission. It was a, a behavioral mission. I it's in a lot of ways what CFA is too. So this is, I think, in real time, we're trying to articulate this now, but that, that's a nice articulation. Can, can I add to that yeah. a little bit? The, I said the other thing, moment that came to mind when you asked me that was in the second year, this woman who worked for, uh, who brought us into in Detroit, which is a crazy place to work, had a great experience with the fellows. I can tell you about the products, but the point is at the end of the year, she said, you know, I've spent 25 years in public service and I gave up on feeling like I could serve the public. And now with these tools, I feel like I'm serving the public again. And that felt somehow like product market fit. Yep. Yep, so, um, so, uh, so play forward to where we are now, so yeah. in 2015. So how many people are, how, how, do you, how do you count how many people are in CFA? Uh, so that's a really good question. We have about 45 staff. Um, we currently have 24 fellows. Um, there are 34,000 people who at least somewhat regularly go to um, Code for America brigade meetings. So brigades are ongoing volunteer groups. They meet up through Meetup. Um, uh, they often meet uh, weekly in city halls around the country, and they're the kind of volunteer fire department, but for technology, essentially. Um, and some of them very much consider themselves, you know, I mean, if you said how many people are Code for America, there's a whole bunch of those people who would say, I'm in Code for America. Yep, that's also you, you, common themes from what you heard with Mozilla, too, which is like um, you turn a weaknesses, which you can't, you can't harp enough people to a strength, which is well, every, you, you become inclusive, bring in everyone. So um, you said staff about 45, fellows 24. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a nice effect too, right? Because mm-hmm. you have people come in and then they automatically leave. Yep. And then they come back in and they automatically leave. So you have alumni too, right? An alumni network. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and there's so much crossover now. We've got, uh, we've also have, uh, part of our extended family is we have six startups that have spun out of Code for America. Some of those startups were founded by, or one of them was founded by one fellow and one sit, former city partner. We've got former fellows that are now are, um, uh, then go into city government and then hire us. <laughs> uh, we've got um, fellows that have come from city government and come into, I mean, it's just ev- now everybody sort of is in this square dance of being at some place in the Code for America family. And I guess for a little while you had a, an accelerator program too, mm-hmm. where, where people from the outside would come in and you'd, yeah. you'd give them hugs. More yes. Yeah. Can you talk about how that worked. Um, well, but sort of round about the uh, end of the first year of Code for America, we were realizing that some of these things that were coming out were um, products that could that could sustain uh, at least a small company, um, and we started thinking about um, if 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 we're going to achieve our vision, which is that government can work for the people by the people in the 21st century, if everybody helps out, then. It's not just governments that need to act differently. It's not just the people who need to act differently, as evidenced by the 34,000 people who do this, but the government ecosystem has to really change as well. Um, And so uh, we knew that there was a a lot of entrepreneurial activity that, uh, you know, potential entrepreneurs that were not understanding the the value of the government market. Um, so we did two things, really. We started incubating some of the fellowship projects that could be sustained as companies, and those are the six spin-outs. Um, but we also um, hosted um, three cycles of the first ever government market-focused accelerator program. And we thought nobody would apply. Uh, the first year, I think we had 194 companies apply to the, to the accelerator um, 
partly because we were sort of walking around there going, you know, I don't think anyone, you know, can anyone understand the size of the government technology market? <laughs> oh, yeah. How many people think, like, do you know, do you have a number? I have a number. How many they're do you guys, how many do people think the government technology market is? Like, what are some guesses? Two hundred billion, a, a trillion, ten billion, five hundred billion. Five hundred billion. What, what do you think? It's it. Two. Your first guess was the closest. It's just a little bit under two hundred, and that's just domestically, and it's just technology, right? So, um, the ability to use technology to capture back cost savings in 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 what we call service delivery is not even captured there. Um, if you want to talk about size of government. Um, you know, we're spending about a trillion dollars a year on um, on government safety net programs in the United States, and most of that is mediated by very, very, very poor technology. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So. Um, okay. So this, and then now you've expanded your quote product lines from. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got the brigades. You've got mm-hmm. um, uh, the fellows. What other products do you have now in, in 2015? So we're going to do is we're going to talk mm-hmm. about the products for a minute, and then we're, mm-hmm. then we're going to talk about your customer for a second. Mm-hmm. We're going to go back and we'll talk about why you did this, and then we're mm-hmm. going to talk about how you operate for a little while. Okay. So, um, so talk about what, what other products you have now. Um, well, what we're doing now is focusing in four areas. And so we've got teams of folks that work outside of the fellowship in um, health and human services, uh, in safety and justice, which is basically um, community policing and um, reducing incarceration in the criminal justice system. Um, economic development and uh, and what we call communications and engagement. So there are products within those that aren't necessarily part of the fellowship. Um, we've been working on um, an easier way for city governments to publish information to uh, their citizens and hear back from their citizens, for instance, um, that uh, that are that are more like you know a company would have sort of a real set of products that we sell to folks. Why why those areas? Why HHS? Why safety and justice? How did you find your way to those? Uh, well, there, it was somewhat emergent and then somewhat strategic. So we had been asked over time to do product, projects in each of those areas in the first four years of Code for America. Um, and asked so we, by, asked by, the, by your customer. By the asked by our customer. So the way we used to do it basically was we would say uh, it was very driven by mayors. So mayors um, wanted to have Code for America come. It, frankly, there is a very nice PR bump. Um, our Fellows wear these, you know, blue American Apparel track jackets, and they'll have a press conference, and they'll show up in the city, and they look like techies, and the mayor gets to say, like, we're bringing tech talent to the city. And partly because of that, we would basically do the project that the mayor wanted us to do. Uh, like, I mean, the case of Discover BPS with the um, school selection thing, it was, it was the thing that was, like, driving the mayor crazy when he was getting angry letters from constituents. Um, but we found this, that we were sort of doing stuff across the board, every area of government. And when we looked at where we wanted to get deeper and kind of not just be doing sort of demonstration projects that got people excited about a new way of doing things, but actually building on that work and being able to get real outcomes in each of those areas, we said, look, we're going to have to focus. We've got, you know, experiments already in those four areas, really interesting experience. We've got products in those areas that we can build on and reuse. And it happens to be that those four areas are things that 
you used that term the other day, hair on fire. Like there is hair on fire in this country around community policing and over-reliance on incarceration. And if you can use data and um, what we call service delivery, service redesign, but basically making the systems that people use to interact with government better to reduce those things, it's something that's really, really important to government and it's really important to the people. Uh, and that's true also in the you know, delivery of um, services to, uh, to people who need food stamps, uh, to uh, the child welfare system. All of these things are really, really, really huge problems for government. So we, we get attention because they're really big problems. So let's go back to the beginning and talk about why you did it. Uh, so mm-hmm. um, that's why. So why, why did you do this? Why did you start it? What, why, what, <laughs> why? why did you do it? Did you have to do it? Did you say this needs to be done and like, nobody else is raising their hand? That's basically it. I um, I, uh, I had been um, work, working on another event that was a sister event to these Web 2.0 conferences and uh, called Gov 2.0. And through the research for that event, we we're trying to sort of define uh, um, define this space. So Gov 2.0 back in 2007 2008 kind of meant get government agencies on social media. And uh, Tim O'Reilly, um, who I was working with at the time, um, had a notion that it, needed some, it meant something much more powerful. It meant like all of the disruptive uh, nature of Web 2.0 applied to government and the ability to really think about government as a platform for you know, more generative work in the same way that at that time the iPhone was coming out. And it was going, oh, platforms make it possible to do these all these amazing things. Um, but so in the course of that work, we actually went to DC quite a bit um, and were talking to people about how they did technology for government. And it was just, it was so shockingly bad. Um, so much money gets spent on these things. Um, things are, are, are built from the ground up that just should be reused, com- reusable components. That it was, it was very eye-opening in a way that like only the ultimate nerd would be sort of, you know, outraged about it, but I was pretty outraged about it. And um, uh, the idea to do a service year program um, was actually, came from a friend of mine who worked in local government who wanted uh, me to bring people from the Web 2.0 world to Tucson, Arizona to do apps for Tucson. And I kept saying it wouldn't happen, but the service year program seemed like a really good idea. And when we thought of it, I did spend a fair amount of time thinking who should do this um, and realizing that no one else was going to do it. And that um, uh, I'm not technical, actually. I, 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 I've written HTML, but I'm not, I'm not really a coder. But that I had spent a long time building a network of people uh, who would probably be interested in this and that, that that network would be something that I could bring to bear on trying to solve the problem. Yeah, a couple of concepts that Michael Deering in particular and Anne and Mirako talked about is that they, uh, they like startups that have authentic founders the best, this, that... The, the startups inside them, they can't, they can't keep it in. And that, that feels a little bit like yeah. what happened here. And then it's interesting because your background, until the Gov2 and other stuff, wouldn't obviously say to me that you were going to go try to fix all of government with nerds. Um, but I also wasn't entrepreneurial. I mean, I, was, I, I worked for companies, you know, the, until this time. It, yep. was, it was completely like throw caution to the wind, quit your job, have no income. Um, it was totally insane. <laughs> <laughs> and the framing was was broad. It's just let's let's try to let's try to make government less stupid by applying nerds. More yeah, or less. that was yeah. it. That was all we had. Yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not such a bad strategy. But um, okay, so Chris. Uh, yeah. Um, why didn't you do it as a for profit? Um, so well, the question is why why, why didn't you yeah. do it as a for profit? 
Um, and, and it's a good question, and people ask us all the time, why don't we become a for-profit now? Um, the, the answer at the time was that um, we were asking people to come do a year of service. So if you're going to work for market rate, I just don't think people would have done it if they felt that they were just contributing to someone else's um, profit. Um, the answer is different today, but it's not that different. Um, there may be at some point pieces of this that, I mean, we've already spun out six companies, so it's not at all that we believe that nonprofits will fix this. I think it's, we want to play a certain role in creating an ecosystem that will be largely driven by for-profit companies. Um, but right now, I think it's still the right thing for us. Um, and I, I think, you know, we're able to attract people who want to be part of it. Yeah, I mean, this is one, I think this is two, two comments on that. So one is the, uh, it's a similar to what Mitchell and Brendan did with Mozilla, which is they said, look, we can't compete symmetrically uh, here. We have to compete in a new way. And we're going to do this thing in an open source way that involves community. But as, like, as the quid pro quo, we're going to commit to this whole community that we're not going to become, we're not going to become super rich from this. Mm-hmm. We're going to pour all this back. So it's, it was the covenant between Mitchell and Brendan and the community at some level that they wouldn't uh, profit uh, extraordinarily from it. And so I think that's part of it. You have to figure out what your, what your advantages are and how to play them and what makes that work. I think the nonprofit status is part of that. Um, the second thing I should have mentioned a, couple, a few minutes ago, which is I think you're going to find themes uh, throughout, this, uh, throughout the, 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 um, the course, Eric Schmidt for sure, me and Lareed and Jen, that we're all pretty flexible in how we think about organizations. So I think that like, the, the model of the organization is changing quickly now, which is we're spin-outs, there are affiliated organizations, there are arms-length affiliations, there are um, groups of people that just hang out and do stuff together. Like yeah. the brigade is just some people who do stuff, but they feel affinity. And so I think that the, um, our traditional notions of association and work are changing quite quickly now. Um, I think you're going to see that everywhere. So I think that the, the most agile organizational thinkers will be the most innovative, innovative over time. Where did the early funding come from and how long did you raise? The question is, where did the early funding come from and, and how long did it take? To raise. To raise, yeah. Um, I got three $10,000 checks that um, helped us get started. One from a friend <laughs> on my birthday. That was nice. <laughs> Head of foundation. She bought me a wallet, actually, for my birthday. And she said, open the wallet. <laughs> that was nice. Um, one from Jean Case um, of Case Foundation. Uh, uh, Steve, uh, Steve Case. Steve and Jean Case, uh, yeah. Uh, and one from the Sunlight Foundation, um, uh, who also um, were our fiscal sponsors for the beginning. Um, and that was enough just to, like, you know, pay legal fees and, you know, be able to pay for the FedExes to go city governments Happy birthday, here's $10,000. Now go work for 100 hours a week for the rest of your life. Exactly. And then I think that actually Stacey at Omidyar, Stacey Donahue um, at the Omidyar Network is the first foundation to give us a check that enabled us to pay salaries, which was really good because I was losing my mind. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Bye. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that work? Like, I mean, how do you, how do you first of all, like, get the context of, like, kind of buying to the idea of applying to your budget? <laughs> to your fake organization? The question is, how did you yeah. get, how did you get <laughs> cities and governments to apply to your fake organization for this fake prize? But it actually was a real prize. Yeah, it was a real prize. And they actually got a lot of, I mean, they were mostly really happy with it. Seattle, not so much. Um, you know, it's actually a pretty common thing. And I, didn't, I don't know that I realized that we were stumbling on something that was quite common in government. Um, 
there a lot of like federal grants, for instance, are administered by like, here's the challenge, apply, tell us why you're the right folks to get this assistance or whatever. So it, we were kind of accidentally just played right into a thing that they already like knew to do. Um, uh, I mean, I, again, I think the, the issue of us not being a real thing at the time um, was just looking good. It, uh, you know, having a decent website just makes you look legitimate, or at least it did in 2010. Um, there, but we, you know, you make, you make them sort of, you know, I say dance for grandma a little bit, and somehow they take you seriously. There, there's a lot of stories like this. Like many, many startups, when they had enterprise customers come in, will go rent employees or, you know, rent space or borrow space from people. I think mostly it's about how do you communicate. I, it's not it's not lying exactly. It's you're trying to figure out how to get them enough confidence that you're going to deliver. And you really have to believe that you can deliver. Uh, so that's that's pretty key. And the and the, the folks that were actually applying, like Nigel and Chris in 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 Boston, absolutely knew that we were making this up. It's the other people in City Hall that they had to convince, and that's where the website came in. Uh, here in the back. How difficult was it to close the first big deal? Big is kind of probably in quotes. This was the big first big deal was probably twenty thousand dollars or ten from a city or something. No, we got uh, we got uh, two hundred fifty thousand oh, dollars out big. of some of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, how difficult was it? It was difficult. Um, but what one another sort of um, uh, mechanism that we had, or sort of a tactic, was um, so make it. A, we we made it a contest. So if you won, you were able to put out a press release saying Boston's been selected, um, and we had a deadline. So we had fellows starting on um, January first, and we you know we said you're you're not in if you don't get the contract signed to us by whatever it was, probably September first. Um, and um, I have learned this since in, in government. It's funny that you actually sometimes relearn the mistakes you've made before. But we, we were working with another, uh, another city government, um, whom I love but will not name here, um, uh, in, on a contract that didn't have a deadline. And it took forever. Um, so having forcing functions is just incredibly valuable, especially in a government context. Yeah, forcing functions are important, I think, in all sales cycles. And I think some, some sense of scarcity, some sense of, FOMO is a word we talk about a lot. Yeah. Fear of missing out. That if you, if they don't sign up, like some other stupid city is going to get it. Fresno is going to get the, the space or whatever it is. Um, so let, let's keep moving a little bit um, because things were going pretty well. So uh, you play forward to 2013. It's the third year of the fellowship. Um, things were going pretty well. We had 12 cities or something like that yeah. in the third year. And so then, then uh, so Jen calls me on in April or something like that and says, okay, great. Things were going great. <laughs> Um, I'm thinking about leaving for a year. So, um, so can you talk about, uh, and to go work uh, in Washington, D.C. And so can you talk about what it felt like to contemplate leaving this thing, which mm. really found product market fit. Yeah. The cities wanted it. They were, they were pulling on it. And you said, well, I want to do this other thing for a little bit, and I'll, be, I'll totally be right back um, in a year. Can you talk Therapy. about what that was like? Yes. And why you did it? Um, so I call. I must. Have, I called you in yeah March or April. But the whole the whole thing had started back in November. Um, and uh, Todd Park, who was the CTO of uh, in, at the, in the White House, um, it really had had created a program modeled after Code for America called the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, which I would recommend to all of you as well as the Code for America program if you're interested. 
um, and wanted me to come help him run it. And it was sort of his play at, you know, innovation, shaking things up in the White House. And when, um, you know, so the election was just over and he had been waiting to talk to me about this until they, you know, knew we had a job for the next four years. Um, and initially I was, I mean, it was, it was a good four weeks after he asked me before I even began to consider it. Um, he said, you know, need you to come. I was like, I, I can't move to DC. I have a startup. And I had like all these like completely solid reasons why that was never going to happen. But I really, really, really liked Todd. And I really, really loved the idea that they were doing this. So I kept saying, let me, um, I'll help you find the right person. Um, and furthermore, um, I really think you should think beyond the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, and you should think about creating a uh, a core service that uh, within federal government that does good technology. And that was because when he called me, I happened to be visiting the government digital service in the UK, which had done that and done it very well. Um, and I, I had my mind blown by that. So I, I used the opportunity of being recruited to just pitch him back on something, but had no intention of doing this uh, and certainly not of moving to D.C., um, I mean, I have a I have a now twelve year old daughter who was not going to move to DC. So this was not just the startup. There there are things even Todd, bigger than the startup. Todd's a pretty good recruiter, it turns out. So Todd's one of the best recruiters in he's, the world. He's the best recruiter in the world. That night, um, Nick Sinai, who was the deputy CTO there at the time, who was with me in London, said, "I heard you got a call from Todd," and I said, "Well, I you know I I'm not going to do this." And he looked at me and he said, "Have you ever heard the term water on stone?" <laughs> And I was like, what? And he's like, we will get you. It's like water on stone. And that's what it was like. It was just, they will, they, he, he doesn't let it go. Yeah, you can't give Todd any daylight. If you give him any daylight at all, he just, he's like, oh, interesting. You don't want to do it because of X. Got it. And then you're like, yeah. he moves X and the changes. And it's like, yeah. it's like maybe, maybe if I have the president call you, let me see, let me see, I'll be right back. And he's a very, very persistent recruiter. And it, it, so that's what he does for the president now um, yep. in this program that Jen started. Yeah, no, it was, it was, um, I would say in some ways I felt like I didn't have a choice, but that's not obviously fair. I did have a choice. Um, but he was, he was extremely persistent. Um, and uh, well, Todd started a, a company called Athena Health, yeah. which is a, a big healthcare company. And then he started another company called Castlight. Uh, and then he decided there were bigger problems to solve, bigger fish to fry. So he, worked, he went to the government and worked for, as a CTO for Health and Human Services before becoming the, the CTO for the White House. So. And, I, and I think in those two jobs, he got enough exposure to why the healthcare system is as it is that, that you have to follow that train back to federal government. So, um, th- th- and in the end, I said yes, because um, he went and created the opportunity to create an American government digital service and said, I did the thing you asked, now you have to come, which felt like, okay, I didn't actually say that, but... Um, uh, it, that felt, yes, it was sort of manipulative, but it worked out well. And um, and because um, I was running this organization and I was dealing with people who work in government who have very specific challenges that are hard to understand if you don't work in government. And I had heard that over and over again, not just from our partners, but actually from the fellows. It was the fellows coming back and saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Like... <laughs> It's really, really, really different. The the way decisions get made, the incentives, the culture is very hard to understand if you're not part of it. And I, I did feel in the end like if I was going to spend the rest of my life asking people to come work with government and I wasn't willing to do it myself, um, A, you know, did I really have the courage of my convictions? And B, um, 
would I really ever understand our client well enough? Yeah, I think my observation is I gave you an insanely powerful tool to use now. It's like, well, I've been there. I've been in your shoes. I understand how it feels. So, so tell me about what it, so that was a year and you, you stepped away and you put leadership team in, in place to, to bridge and, and really you burned mm-hmm. the candle on both ends realistically. You were also on board, board calls even while you were, while you were away. So, um, but tell me what it was like to come back. So this, you started this organization, you let somebody else run it for a little bit although you were around. Um, and then you came back, and how did you? How did your? How did your lens change? How, how did you look at it differently than before? And what did you? What did you not see right away that had changed? You know, just talk about coming back a little bit. Um, well, I think it, it was a, it was a profoundly strange experience in some ways. Um, I had been through not just a year in the White House, but a year of healthcare.gov crashing and burning, being around that, trying to start the United States Digital Service, many times sort of wanting to stick a pencil in my eye. Um, uh, I actually felt pretty demotivated at the end, of, not demotivated. I felt, I felt when I left that I hadn't succeeded and I was just, I look back at it now and it was a wonderful year, but, and, and so much good stuff has happened. But it's really hard when you're in the middle of it. So um, I was sort of coming back to Code for America saying, breath of fresh air. Now I'm in an environment where I'm the CEO, I'm in control, and it's going to be so different from the incredibly difficult year I had trying to convince a bunch of people to do this thing that was obviously the right thing to do for me, you know, in my view, but not obviously the right thing to do in their view. Um, And found that, in fact, you know, the organization had changed uh, a lot. it took me a longer time to diagnose that than I thought. It looked the same and people were saying the same words. Right. And so I, I, I very much wish I could take back those first three months and do those first three months differently uh, upon return. Uh, and um, just didn't do what I really needed to do. I went, and I mean, I, the first thing I did when I came back is I met with every staff member and like half the staff that at that point was new because we'd grown so much while I was gone. And got to know them a little, but I didn't ask the right questions. And um, I didn't understand that we weren't, the, this focus area strategy I talked about earlier that we thought we were doing wasn't happening. Um, and so uh, it, it, was, it was a process of, of really um, seeing past the surface um, and grappling with a lot of good intentions, but a different direction that I'd really wanted it to go and, and sort of um, trying to steer even a nonprofit, you know, in a way that that, that took some time, and it was was um, a wake up call to me. I think about about how organizations work. Chris, um, what would the right questions have been? Um, <laughs> Chris always asks those questions. That is a really good question. I mean, very specifically at the t- at the time, um, there were just things I missed about um, when I came back. We were starting our recruitment cycle for our next set of partners, um, and. I didn't ask specific enough questions about um, uh, the sales offering, about how we were framing it, um, because I assumed that things that um, that we were talking about at the board had sort of translated down, um, you know, from the executive director to the staff, um, and I just should have sort of from the ground up, like looked at looked at more materials specifically, asked, you know, okay, will we be, you know, how are we working in these focus areas now? Um, and I did ask a number of questions. I mean, it was, it was an awkward time because I came back to a couple of programs that had been started that were really, really great, had great intentions, 
but there were what, what Eric Reese calls zombie projects. Like they didn't have any clear metrics. So it was, you couldn't kill them or you could, they, there was no reason for them to live or die because you didn't know why they existed in the first place other than sort of people felt good about them. So we shut down a couple of programs. So there was already this sort of heightened sensitivity to Jen's back and things are different. Um, and <laughs> Jen's back and th- she's killing projects. And I'm killing projects. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted to demonstrate that I, um, I trusted the team and I wasn't a micromanager. And I think there was a way not to be a micromanager, but still understand that, that decisions that were made in the first three months when I was already back um, were on track. And if I had dug in, we would have been able to steer those because the, the way Code for America works is, you know, you, it takes you nine months um, before you work, start working with a government partner to get that all set up. So you live with the consequences of your decisions for a really long time. So um, the, the staff had probably about doubled, right, when, between mm-hmm. when, you, when you were first there, when you, when you came back. So yep, they heard a lot. Tell me about how you think about what it takes to manage differently now, because now the staff's 50 people instead of 25 people, give or take. And so mm-hmm. as, a, as a CEO, how's your job changed? Is that, is that as grown? How do you manage differently now? Um, well, um, <laughs> as you know, not... Uh, and not, I don't feel like we're entirely in a compliment there. I was going to say, this is the part where Jen's going to say something self-deprecating, but she's doing fine. Well, thank you. Um, but we we definitely need more operational, you know, strength in terms of managing. What, what, um, what does that mean, operational strength? Um, the day-to-day, I'm, um, you know, I'm here doing this talk instead of, um, I mean, very literally at this moment. <laughs> I am due to get um, OKRs back to our focus area leads so that they can ship them to our functional area leads. And I'm here instead. (laughs) 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 This will be a theme too. People with day jobs don't have enough time to teach, but thank you. So there, you know, there's a there's a there's a blocking and tackling of you know one on ones with your key staff. You know, are we clear on our goals that just sometimes get missed because I'm on the road, I'm doing fundraising, I'm doing public speaking, um, I'm doing business development, and um, and you know we just we're we're hiring for a chief operating officer so that there's someone who's more consistently there to do those things and make sure we're still on track. And like really read through all the OKRs and really edit them, and really make sure we're on the same page. Um, but I, I did have a benefit early on of having. I feel like, and this happened. I mean, I'm. I'm. I hope everybody has this experience, and I've had it in previous in my career too, where um, you. The, the words you say mean the same things to the people you're talking right. to. It's just such a beautiful right. feeling. Um, and I mean, I had one staff early on. Um, a uh, very young guy just right out of college who came in who could, I think he could just read my mind. Um, and there was very little sort of friction in terms of translation from what I intended and then what was executed. And um, when you have a team like that, it just, it feels really, really great. And you just can't count on that continuing. And so you get, uh, the thing I do just sort of daily right now is sort of remind myself, I know I said those words, but that's probably not what this, that person heard. Let's double back and check. And where I fall down is I don't go back and, if I don't go back and check because I'm on a plane elsewhere and, it, you know, and it's got to move forward and, and you're not going, okay. You know, let's let's match between what we thought we, thought we said we were going to do and what we're actually doing. You know, it was a great quote. The problem with communication is the illusion that it has occurred. It's, it's a beautiful quote. That's exactly right. So this is one of my favorite topics. I think of the of the role as a CEO. So I think that as you get bigger, 
CEOs start to t- t- talk about more and more words like communication and alignment. And oh my god, they hate the term alignment now. Yeah, I love the word like, alignment. Is almost all I think about as you get bigger because you're trying. What you're trying to do is get. It's on get, our list of words you're not supposed to say at the office anymore, and good. I still say it all the time. So that's good to know. The, um, <laughs> noted. Um, uh, the reason you talk about it is what you're trying to do is create an organization where the, the organization will roughly make the same set of decisions whether you're in the room or not. So how do you do that? And especially if you're growing, if you're doubling every year, if you're growing more and more people, people come in who, haven't, who don't have a ton of time with Jen. The thing she said is, I mean, it's an amazing experience to have somebody you work with that you don't have to talk in complete sentences to. Like there's somebody uh, that I worked with uh, for the better part of 25 years, a guy named Mike Hansen, who was Stanford CS. He and I can finish each other's sentences. Uh, and he's the smartest technical person I've ever known. I can say three words and, he's, and he, he codes a prototype and like, boom. And um, like that's an unbelievably powerful relationship. And the, the, the net is, if you ever find a relationship like that, do not let it go. Invest, invest, invest. But as CEO, what's happening is you're bringing more and more people in, and you'll say words. And like Jen says, they, they make, they're perfectly clear to you. And they're probably perfectly clear to some percentage of the staff. And they are probably like Greek to some of the rest of the staff. The, um, I, I remember we, in my startup, Reactivity, we hired a CEO who was an HP guy, and he's an amazing guy named Glenn Osaka. And he used to get so pissed off at me. Like the first year he was CEO and I had stepped down from being CEO, he had almost fired me literally four times that year because I was such, a, I was such an asshole. Um, but we, we got into such fights. Uh, I was a founder, I was a kid, whatever. But um, he, he re, like, and we'd get, we'd get into these meetings where he would say, well, in the near term, we need to do this and that and this. And I'm like, in the near term, we have to do like this and that. And, and what, what we realized is like when he said near term, he meant like 18 months. Yeah. And I meant like Tuesday. <laughs> and, and we're like, holy shit, we're talking about different things, even yeah. though we're using the same words. Yeah. And so then he gave me like safe words, right? So then, <laughs> then, he's, then he said, okay, okay, when we do this, instead of us fighting in front of, in front of all the children, um, just say, let's take this offline and yeah. we'll go talk about it. And then once he figured that out, once we figured that out together, we started identifying issues when we had vocabulary differences as opposed to intent differences. And that was a breakthrough. But it's a lot of fucking work when you've got a team that's growing and a team that's trying to do all their own work and you've got to keep track of who knows what. And so as a result, like at Mozilla, like as a result, as we got bigger and bigger, I started, um, oh, there's a second problem, which is every day, especially in any learning organization, the CEO learns stuff. Yeah. So you learn stuff today that makes your point, your thought process a little different than yesterday in kind of a nuanced way. And the next day you learn a little bit more, and the next day you learn a bit more. And so if you're not careful, your message changes and kind of, kind of moves over time, and you don't get enough time with everybody for them to notice this. And so right. like my aha at Mozilla was I had to keep simple messages, a small number of messages, and I had to repeat it over and over and over and over and over. I had to keep it the same every meeting and the, until it was time to change, and when I changed, make mm-hmm. a really big change. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm about to change this thing I've said for a year. But it's um it's a hard communication problem. Yeah, I suffer from that. <laughs> sure. You said you have this kind of great team that builds what you do and what you work for. Did you have those guys when you were so the question is who was were the were the folks that I relied on um yeah. really well? Were they there when you went to work for government? Or did you have to hire those people? How did that work? Um they, uh, we didn't hire uh, new leadership when I left, um, and, but that was partly because 
I made this promise to be right back. <laughs> Let me just go set up a service in the White House and I'll be right back. One thing that happens when you hire temporary leadership or interim leadership is they tend to fill up the slot that the person was in. And so it tends to not, not exist when they come back. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, the, what, one, of the, one of the folks that I was referring to could sort of read my mind was, was there when, uh, uh, when I left. Other questions for Jen? I'll, I'll keep asking questions too. But do you, do you have questions? Yeah. What's I'm from the south. What's your strategy to penetrate like a much more culturally less accepting, you know, I guess, of change in general? Mm-hmm. What's, what's your What's your strategy for like, areas like that? What are you yeah. saying about the south? <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, it's yeah. in Boston, Seattle, yeah, DC, like. Well, so this that's different than like you know like you know rural Alabama like like a lot of underserved communities that like mm-hmm. might not be so open to you know West or Silicon Valley like coming and changing things. So what's your strategy dealing with that? Um, well, I think so, inherent. So the question is. The question is. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, what's What's the CFA strategy for dealing with cities that might not be as progressive uh, as some of the early early adopters? Which is actually kind of a common customer question too. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a really good question. I, I, I'm before I answer it, I'll say. I mean, we've worked in uh, Atlanta, we've worked in Louisville, Kentucky, um, we've worked. In, I mean, we, we, we've worked in some smaller places. We haven't worked a ton in the South. I'll agree, um, but we're also often in places that are that are not particularly tech friendly. There's like one great champion for change who's really into us and then a lot of folks that might be more of the culture that you're referring to. Um, so we've done some of it. But, I mean, basically the strategy is you've got to just make this normal. Um, so the more that they can look at other cities, bigger cities, cities their size, um, you know, cities that are, comp- you know, uh, that are that are like them in some way, and say eh, they're doing it over there, and the sky didn't fall because they did it there. Um, then you'll be able to get into those places that are that are less friendly or less sort of jumping on the bandwagon. But I think that happens. I mean, stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. You know, ten years later, it's like, well, that's just how you do it, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make this just how you do it. And there was a great line from our Code for America Summit, which was last week. This year, where someone tweeted, you know, every year this seems less and less like this crazy thing, and more and more like, of course. Yeah, part of startup, part of startups is just showing up and just doing it, and then people just get used to it. So I have one more question, and then if we have time for a couple more questions, so um, how do you tell whether you're winning or not? It's not a financial metric. It's not a user metric. How do you tell? Um, so I'll give you the official answer, and then sort of non-official answer. Um, uh, you know, we ha- we'd set really clear metrics. Um, uh, there, there's not one. I, you know, there's the one metric to rule them all um, philosophy, and we have um, not done that. We not have that. a number of ne- metrics. Um, we do a lot of different projects, and so we have to have a way of of looking across them. Um, you know, we didn't go with like users because some of these projects have like three users, but they have very high impact. So we've gone for the number of our projects that are sustained. We've gone for the number of people who have decided to stay in government. We've gone for a whole set of things. Um, uh, actually, redeployments, uh, be, because users isn't a great metric for us in all cases. When things are le- redeployed, we consider them to be successful. Why would someone redeploy them if they weren't successful? So redeployments are a big metric for us. Um, uh, so, you know, we kind of live and die by this dashboard um, where we 
tally up these wins in these different categories and we report that back to our funders. Um, I know we're winning when stuff happens as like happened, you know, last week where um, uh, we're in the right place in the right time to be able to tell somebody that uh, the, I won't name what it is, but it's, a, well, I will say it's the state of California um, is about to put out an RFP for um, a computer system that will run a social service. Um, and we think that, they think that the, 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 the system will cost a billion dollars. <laughs> uh, and it'll take five years. And in the meantime of building, I mean, things that take five years and cost a billion dollars have about, uh, you know, a 2% success rate, especially in government. So in that meantime, the service that, um, that, that, that people and children rely on uh, will continue as is, which is terrible, and it doesn't work very well. And we know there's a better approach. We know you can do this um, modularly, iteratively. We know you can start small and build and have users involved all the way. This is being done now because of HealthGuard Up, because of the um, United States Digital Service, because there's now all these examples. You know that you can do this in government. And I, you know, I think we were in a position to say, um, there's a lot of political reasons why this may move forward, but I think we might be able to stop it. And when people are really listening to you because you've done something else for them that worked out really well, and they're going, okay, maybe there's a way to, to make this come out differently, and like that's a big win, then I think we're winning. Those things make me really happy. So that reminds me of the question that a student asked, I think, which is project forward 10 or 15 years. I'm not mm -hmm. sure what the time frame is. What's, what's, the, what's the happy case? Like, paint the picture of what happens. Of what the what government's like and what the interactions are like. Well, I mean, ultimately, I think um, yeah. The, so the the interactions, um, you know, you would you would not have this you know completely like screech experience if you're having an interaction either digital or otherwise in government that makes it so different from you know a you know a consumer transaction that you would have getting an Uber or something. Yeah, um, and you know maybe a little different in some ways, but right now there's this huge gulf, and so we need to we need to um, to span that gulf. Um, there, there's a lot of ways that you can that you might express that. I think also, it's not just for us in this room, right? We I, I care deeply about government working um, in ways that um, if you've not been on food stamps or you've not had your kid go into the child welfare system, or um, actually if you've not tried to do a startup without a lawyer, <laughs> you won't see that dysfunction. And so it's 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 you know it's it's for everybody, right? Um, but I think that the um, the real way we'll know is that people will have greater trust and faith in government and will support it. That's the problem. It's very hard for people to um, to, to support government and want to invest in these in in, in a social safety net in you know in um, uh, trust government when the experience we have is kind of makes them look incompetent and frustrates us. So um, my, the ultimate goal really is that we we believe in government, we invest in government, and we use it in ways that are consistent with our values. So if we're going to spend a billion dollars on any given service, um, it ought to be in helping people, not in the computer system, right? Uh, we spend $70 billion a year on food assistance in this country. Or we, you know, like, let's actually have that be in money that we give people to buy food, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, any other questions for Jen? Sure. So a lot of people in tech like to stay away from government because of like bureaucratic red tape. What were some of the biggest hurdles that you guys encountered with all the different local governments? And how did you get past them? So the question is a lot of startups, a lot of people in tech want to stay away from government. It seems hard, a lot of red tape. What did you do to, what are some hurdles and how did you get around them? Um, there are hurdles that for sure. And the biggest one is procurement. Um, 
I could talk all night long about procurement. Let's not do that. Um, it's more interesting than it sounds like. It is interesting. It's very interesting. It's a system that's accrued over time to reduce risk, which has accidentally created enormous risk, right? It's created high very high <laughs> failure rates. Um, so the system of procurement is designed, there's, there's multiple levels of, of procurement systems, basically, and it's a, a way that the government buys things. Um, we unfortunately buy software the same way we buy pencils um, or trucks, um, which is, you know, we, we spec things out to a very, very high degree and then we take them out to bid. And there's so many steps in the process. All of those pro- steps in the process are designed to reduce fraud and waste because there's very low levels of trust. You don't want your taxpayer dollars being spent because I decided to give a contract to my cousin, right? So there's all these layers that are, uh, and procedures that are built in to keep that from happening. Unfortunately, that means if you're a startup, um, you might experience, you know, uh, nine months of trying to go through a procurement process to try to, you know, or, or trying to get a bid. The amount of paperwork is intense. The number of certifications you have to make. You have to, you have to do things like certify that your bathrooms are labeled pro- properly. Like you have appropriate it's labeling a little, it's a on your nutty. bathrooms. It's, I mean, there's, there's all these sorts of crazy things. But in, but in nine months, technology may have changed. And right. Not, and project, projects get long, people roll off. So, like, when you get long projects, people roll off. That increases the risk of the thing failing. That's why big projects just don't just don't convert. We know this. Well, the we nine months would just be to get the contract, the start, and then they want you to build the thing for five years because they're giving you specs for you know seven modules of a system. That's you know it's ridiculous. Where you really want to start small and build with users. But what I will say is that it's changing. Um, we've got a number of startups that came through our accelerator. And we had one in particular, a great rule. Anyone who complains about procurement is fired. Just <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> and actually, that's worked really well for them. Um, but you see procurement hacks. I mean, a lot of people originally kind of called Code for America for a procurement hack because you, we did go through a procurement. But instead of procuring software, we were procuring people who could do what were needed in, you know, what was needed in, in a short period of time. Um, there is a lot of there are a lot of things that are happening to change procurement that are too nerdy for us to go into right now. To be slightly over the top on nerdiness, for instance, the um, federal government's now issued something called an Agile BPA. It's a blanket purchase agreement for agile software development. As this starts to propagate throughout government, um, and in fact, we'll probably use it with you know with this state that we're working on to try to get them off of this. Um, uh, billion-dollar plan, which won't work. Um, uh, you, the, the, the problem is the tools at hand. So you have a ton of people in government who know the right thing to do, and they look around and they go, none of the tools that I have will get me there. Oh, well, let's just do what we did before. And when you can give them tools, like, here's this thing. It's called the Agile BPA. It's, BPA. it's legal. You can use it. Do. Then they can, they can do that. And, and that's what's changing. It, it, it changes maybe not as fast as I'd like, um, but it's changing, and um, there is now a fund exclusively for government technology startups. And the guy who runs it, this amazing guy named Ron Buganim, um, who started it because he worked with us for um, uh, a couple of years as a volunteer and, and saw the dynamics of the market and saw that they were changing, says that the average sales cycle in his portfolio right now is 86 days, uh-huh. which if you told somebody that a year ago uh-huh. in government technology, they would have said, you are crazy. Um, but it is, but it's it's because people are, are finding they have new tools and they're finding new ways of doing things. 
Great. So we should wrap up because uh, Jen's got to get to the city, uh, as do I. So, um, so thank you. Thank you. This much. was fun.